to turn to Galatians 2.20. That is the text that we will primarily be looking at this morning, although we will consider a few others as well. They also are printed for you in the bulletin. And so here now, uh, the word of the Lord as we look at these three texts together. First, starting in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And again in Philippians 1, beginning at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as is always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. When Wes asked me to prepare a sermon to share with you, told me he was going to go see his daughter this weekend up at Covenant College, uh, I asked him, I said, well, how long am I supposed to preach? And he said, make it a glorious an hour and a half exposition of the Word of God. So, uh, just kidding. Um, not in the least. Sorry. Bad joke. The one thing you're going to learn about me quickly is I make lots of those. So, uh, you can humor me or you can roll your eyes. I, I've seen it all and experienced it. Um, over the past couple of I hope this isn't being recorded. If it is, if we could edit button and start right now, that'd be great. Over the past several years, I've had the privilege of meeting some people and some families in Westminster Church. Uh, our children go to the daycare school, our two boys do, the oldest one's uh, old now, but um, the younger one still comes here. Obviously, I met Wes and kind of developed a friendship with him, but I realized that people don't know me very, very well. And so one thing that you need to know about me is I like stories, whether it's stories from music, whether it's books, uh, epic poetry, um, whatever it may be, and particularly movies, like movies. But my wife, Debbie, likes to pick on me, and she says that, why do you only like depressing movies. You only like depressing movies. And as any spouse would hear something said to them by their spouse, I did the logical thing. That's not true. You know, I, I, what are you talking about? That's not true. So I started thinking about movies. Some of the, my favorite movies are movies that have kind of moved me in some way. And here's a list I came up with. Uh, Glory, a historical epic about the uh, Civil War, if you've seen it. Uh, Gladiator, uh, Braveheart, uh, 310 to Yuma, Charlotte's Web. Yes, I said Charlotte's Web, not a typo there. Uh, Saving Private Ryan and that sort of thing. Okay, maybe she knows me better than I know myself. But the truth is this. I like movies like that because they feel real to me. And also, there's one word I would use to associate that. It's something very inspiring and passionate uh, about someone who is willing to die for something or someone. It's noble. It's very noble. And whether you hear it in a song or you read it in a book, sometimes a children's book, sometimes a, uh, old literature, uh, many times in the Bible, of course, but it's very, very noble. So this morning, I want to ask you a tough question. Okay, I'm going to ask the question, but try to prepare your mind. Don't think logically, or, or sorry, do think logically, but just respond quickly to the question inside your mind. Here's the question. If I could have coffee with every one of you, this is a question I would ask. Hands down, no question asked. If it came to it this morning, who would you die for? No questions asked. Who would it be? A spouse? 
maybe it's a child or children, might be a close relative, maybe a close friend, but who would you hands down, Stephen, that's a no-brainer, I would die for fill in the blank. We all could fill in that with people that we know. But let me ask the same question, but turn it around a little differently. Who would you live for? Hands down, no questions asked, and that's a tougher question to answer. I don't want to demean anybody's sacrifice of their life for another. That's not the intent. But living for something and someone is oftentimes more difficult. Because to die, as Paul said, is gain. For Christians, it's one act. Whereas to live for someone, it costs you your lifetime. 60 years, 70 years, 90 years, how many years that God gives us? So it's harder to think that way. So one more question before we go back to our test, I would ask you, test text this morning would be this. What is your mission in life? What's your purpose in life? Why are you here? I know the good reformed answer that many of us would give to glorify God and enjoy Him forever from our Westminster standards. But we can glorify God and we can enjoy Him in many different ways. But the question is very specific. Why are you here? And I ask that question because if Paul had a mission statement, uh, there's lots of verses that could be in the running for it, but I really think Galatians 2.20 uh, could be in the top three. Uh, look back with me in your scriptures at Galatians 2.20. I'd like to read that one more time. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Pray with me as we look to God's word. Father, as we come to a very familiar text of Scripture, uh, oftentimes it's easy uh, for us to just kind of faintly acknowledge you and, and move on. Uh, so God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would give us ears to hear what you have to say through your Word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Two things to consider before we uh, look at this in greater detail. Uh, first of all, there is an outline, I believe, on the back of your uh, bulletin if you would like to follow along. Before I get to that outline, I'd like to you consider, consider two thoughts from this verse. Uh, number one, Galatians was one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. And uh, since my kids go to school here, I've seen that you guys have been studying, I think, going through Acts, if I remember correctly. And so oftentimes, you, you'll be familiar with this statement. Paul would go and set up these churches. Uh, he would establish pastors. He would get the churches kind of planning churches is the terminology we would use today. And then he would leave. And then as events in life, or more importantly, God allowed, he would come back, visit the churches, or sometimes he would write letters to the churches. Sometimes these were letters of encouragement. Sometimes, honestly, these were letters of chastisement. But they were letters meant to disciple the churches and to keep them going. And so the reason why he wrote Galatians, you need to know this as you look at Galatians 2.20, is a group of Christians called the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians who came into the church, and they basically were telling Gentiles, Christians, in order to be saved, it's Jesus plus something. That's essentially what they were saying. Particularly, they were focusing on um, circumcision, the Old Testament laws. They were saying you have to keep the Old Testament Jewish law and have Jesus in order to be saved. Obviously, if you've read your Bible, you know that that's not true. That's not the gospel. And so Paul was writing to correct that thinking. Um, secondly, he was writing to address this. He was saying union with Christ. That is the core 
of the gospel. And that's really where we're going in our text this morning. So what I want to ask you to think for a second. This is a phrase, if you've been uh, in reform circles a long time, you've heard union with Christ. Let's say you have a, uh, I don't know, you go to college with, with somebody, a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, and they say to you this week, hey, you're one of those Christians, right? You know, yes, I am. Well, I heard this phrase on the radio, union with Christ. What does that mean? How would you answer your friend? What would you say? Well, great question. This is what union with Christ is. More importantly, where would you go to in Scripture to try to clarify and say, this is what God's Word says union with Christ is. That's the concept that we want to look at this morning. One theologian has said this, a guy named A.A. A. Hodge. He once said that union with Christ is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he, being Christ, is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. And still another, a man named Louis Burkhoff, said this, that the union with Christ so far transcends all the analogy of earthly relationships and the intimacy of its communion and the transforming power of its influence and then the excellence of its consequences. And I'll give you the New American Steve Hansen version of that. Union with Christ is far greater than we can truly wrap our minds around. Union with Christ is the core of a Christian faith. Its significance cannot be overstated. It cannot be. But the truth is, oftentimes, we forget this importance. We forget the vitality of union with Christ. This, in turn, causes us to view our faith and even Christianity as mere moralism. Do this, and God will be happy, and He'll bless you. Don't do this, and God will be happy. But that's not Christianity at all. So, in other words, we often don't understand or believe the daily implications of the gospel. So this morning we're going to look at three truths, as I said, primarily from Galatians 2, but we'll also consider uh, the 1 Corinthians passage and the Philippians 1 as well. So the first is simply this. Uh, Union with Christ brings a changed position. A changed position. Uh, Look with me at the last part of Galatians 2.20. Paul writes this. The life I now live in the flesh, or in the body in some translations, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says here that Jesus loved us. And when loved us, loved his people, the elect. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. This in turn brings a changed position. And this is the changed position that Paul speaks of in that 2 Corinthians 5.21 verse that we just looked at. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse has also been, uh, often been called uh, double imputation in theological circles. That's a fancy word, and it just means this. It says, if I. So in other words, when Paul says, for my sake, for our sakes, he made him who knew no sin, it's as if Jesus himself sinned, even though he never sinned. We know he, he never sinned once. But when he was crucified on the cross for the sin of his people, it was if he sinned. At the same time, for God's people, the people that God has chosen to save, it's as if we didn't sin. That's why it goes on to say that we might become the righteousness of God. So if union with Christ brings a changed position, then obviously we need to ask, you know, change from what? And obviously I just told you. Consider this. I'm going to go through it quickly for time, but I'll try to go slow enough in case you want to write down notes because I'm going to give you a lot of verse references that you can look up later on your own if you like. 
Consider what the Bible says about people who are not in Christ. We use terms like not a believer or not Christian or uh, not a follower of Christ. But what does the Bible say about people who are not in Christ? This is what the Bible says. They're enemies of God. James, James 4, James 4, verse 4. They are unrighteous. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. They are dead in their sins. That's Ephesians 2, 1. They are darkened in their understanding. That is also, excuse me, I lost my place, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4.18. They are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Colossians 1.21. Strangers to the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12. And maybe perhaps most staggering, they have no hope and are without God in the world, also Ephesians 2.12. So when Paul writes in Galatians 2 that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, he's pointing to the transformation that has taken place. When God say, if you're in this room this morning and you are a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for one year, six months, 60 years, when God did that, these verses that I just read, that's who you were before Christ. And that's who people are who aren't in Christ. But now hear what God's Word says about people that are in Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, this is who you are. One of my favorite verses of all Scripture, Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. You are the very family of God. That verse actually says that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. Isn't that amazing? You know your life, and I'm not accusing, well, I guess I am accusing because I'm a sinner too, but the point is we know our lives, we know our sin, our spouses know our sin. And if you're in Christ, Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, stands before the Holy God and says, I'm not ashamed to be called His brother. I'm not ashamed to be called her brother. Amazing, amazing passage. That's Hebrews 2.10. We also are called righteousness, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5.21, also Romans 5.19 as well. We are heirs of God's promises in Romans 8.17 and also Galatians 3.29. We are alive in Christ, Ephesians 2.5. All this to say that union with Christ brings a changed position before a holy and a righteous God. And remember this, my friends. God does not lower his standards when he chooses to accept us or save us. He doesn't say, oh, they mostly kept the Ten Commandments. They just kind of ignored this one, but that's okay. I can turn my back on that one. That's not what God does. The standard is holiness. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see God. But Jesus kept that perfect standard of holiness, and it's as if we kept it when we place our trust in Him. There was a story in St. Louis when I went to um, seminary up there. One of the most amazing, profound stories I've ever heard. There was a a Christian couple who had adopted a little boy. I don't know the names. I know the story is true, but I don't know the names. We'll just call uh, the mom Mary, and we'll we'll call the son Matthew. But Mary was home with her boy Matthew, adopted boy, and I think she and her husband had other children as well. But Matthew was running around the house, and he was playing with some type of brush that he wasn't supposed to play with. I don't know if it was like an antique heirloom, family heirloom or something, but something he wasn't supposed to play with. And so as he was playing with this little item, the mom saw it and Mary said, Matthew, please don't play with that. You have toys to play with. I don't want it to get broken. You're not allowed to play with this. Do you understand? And he said yes. And then as soon as she left the room, what did Matthew do? He played, played, played with the brush. Well, he broke the brush when he was playing. I don't know if it was intentional or if it was accidental, but he broke the brush. And then he did something that we all are guilty of. He hid from his sin. 
he went under mom and dad's bed, curled up in a fetal position with the broken brush next to him and just hit. And now moms, you're going to really resonate with this, although dads, when you babysit, you as well. You know that eerie feeling when it gets too quiet in your house? Like the kids are there, but you forget they're there because it's too quiet, and then you're like, Wait a minute. Hey, Grantham, Mason, yep, I, I, need, I need to check in on you a little bit. Well, that obviously happened. So Mary called him out. Matthew, you know, Matthew, where are you? No answer. Matthew, Mommy's calling you. I expect you to answer Mommy when I call. Still no answer. So then she starts looking around, going in the closets, you know, looking around. Then she's starting to get really concerned. Oh, well, eventually she found him. And this is where she did and said one of the most profound things I've ever heard. This woman crawled under the bed because she could see that the brush was broken. She wrapped herself in a fetal position like her son around her son and she looked Matthew in the eyes and she said, Matthew, I want to tell you something. She said, just as you did nothing to become a part of this family, so you can do nothing to stop being a part of this family. One of the most profound things I've ever heard, I'll say it again, just as you did nothing to become a part of this family so you can do nothing to stop being a part of this family. This is a woman who knew the magnitude of union with Christ. She knew what that was and what it looked like. And joyfully she was sharing that and really I would say discipling her son in a moment of great tenderness. A changed position, union with Christ brings a changed position. It changes everything. Whether it's that little boy in St. Louis, whether it's an ex-criminal who fulfills his debt to society, or whether it's those of us who are in Christ this morning, a change position changes everything. And that's really the question this morning. Are you in Christ? Again, if I could talk to everyone in this room, this is what I would ask you. I wouldn't ask you, are you a Christian? Because lots of people say they're Christian. In fact, if you look at the statistics, we live in a Christian country according to the statistics. Um, I wouldn't ask you that. I'm also not going to ask you things like, do you go to youth group? Do you go to Sunday school? Do you go to, are you really holy? And you go both church and Sunday school. Um, or if you're really holy, you go to church, Sunday school, Bible study, small group, youth group, and you do the service project. You know, that's how we earn our holiness. Those are all great things. Those are wonderful things that God calls us to do. But here's a scary thought. You can do all of those things and not be in Christ. You can do every. I can stand before you and be a pastor and not be in Christ. That's why I said you cannot uh, underestimate or really overestimate the importance of union with Christ. Union with Christ not only brings a changed position, but second, union with Christ brings a changed perspective. Again, if you look at verse 220 that we're looking at, the first part, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then Paul wrote similar thoughts in Philippians 1, 20 and 21 that we read that says this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Actually, that's verse 21. It's not just our position that has changed when we are one with Christ. It's that our perspective has changed as well. The Bible teaches this. Let me give you a quick quiz. Think to yourself. The Bible teaches... I guess you could say five things if you want to get technical, but four things were nailed to the cross on Calvary those many years ago. Can you think to yourself, what four things were nailed to the cross? Obviously, Jesus was nailed to the cross. We read about that in the, the Gospel accounts. Uh, the sign that read, uh, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, the sign was nailed to the cross. There's two more things that were nailed too. One was the sin debt of God's people. 
Uh, you can read about that. In fact, I'm going to flip there. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If not, I will read it. Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14 says this. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 13. Paul writing to the church at Coloss. And you, again, he's writing to Christians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. In other words, this record of debt he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So our sin debt was nailed to the cross. And if you were in Christ this morning, so were you, according to Galatians 2.20. Now let me explain what that means. Obviously, none of us were physically nailed to the cross that Jesus was. But Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I like what one commentator said about this verse. Uh, He suggested this, that what this means is Paul's former self. Uh, The person that Paul was before Christ saved him, before he trusted in Jesus, with all his sinful goals and his proud, self-exalting desires, came to a decisive end. In other words, he died to use that terminology. Uh, The Greek is useful here, too. Paul uses what's called the uh, the perfect tense. The basic thought of perfect tense in Greek works like this. It's a progress of an action has been completed. So kind of like our past tense in the English language. But the results of the action are continuing on in full effect in the present. So unlike the English perfect, which indicates a completed past action and then it's done, the Greek perfect tense indicates the continuation of and a present state of a completed past action. So in other words, here would be an example. Galatians 2.20 that we read this morning could be translated as follows. I am in a present state of having been crucified with Christ. Because this indicates that not only was I crucified with Christ in the past, but I'm existing now in that present condition. It is is ongoing. Changes our perspective. If you've ever seen the Disney film Beauty and the Beast, um, then you know about a changed perspective. You get this very young, selfish a uh, man, young boy, who essentially was spoiled and given everything he wanted, uh, and then the lady shows up and wants to uh, stay a night because she's hideous. He cast her away, and then, of course, he is cursed, turns into the beast. But then he ends up, uh, again, I guess this is kind of a depressing story, except for the end as well. I guess I do like depressing movies. But he kidnaps Belle, uh, or kidnaps her dad, actually, and then they do the great exchange and all that. But the point is, through unconditional love, his perspective has changed. Belle's nice to him. She uh, extends unconditional love to someone who is rude, to someone who really scares her. She thinks any minute he could you know, rip me to shreds. But her unconditional love changed not only his perspective, but eventually, if you've seen the story, changes his position uh, as well. But if you're in Christ this morning, then you too died, to use that terminology, when God saved you. And what it means is this. It means that we died to our will, our desires, our hopes, and our dreams. In other words, your life is not your own. And so, if you would ask me, so Stephen, you're saying to me, I have no claim over my own life. Yes, that's true. Jesus has claim over your life. If you are indeed in Christ. If you're not in Christ then you do have claim over your life. Sadly, because that means when you die, you have claim over your sin. 
and you have to pay for that. And that's why God sends people to hell, people who reject him. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says this, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That price, of course, is the blood of Christ. I once heard someone say this, and it just kind of stuck with me. Divine wrath, even divine, divine wrath could only be abated by divine blood. God's wrath is divine because he's God. And that wrath can only be paid for, that can only be abated by divine blood. If the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done does not change your perspective on life, then I would ask you to consider, perhaps you don't really belong to him. I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell people, yes, you're a Christian. No, you're not. I can't do that. But what I can do is point you to this. When God saves someone, when God says, this, he is mine, she is mine, when he does that, when someone truly grasps the amazing truth of the gospel, our attitudes are changed. That is why if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then at some point in, in life you can say, yeah, I remember I was struggling with this. I had a bad attitude and God kind of taught me patience. Or uh, I used to use terrible language all the time. But God showed me that verse that says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building others up. So I stopped cussing at people and I stopped using you know, dirty language, things like that. Once God saves someone, there really is an attitude adjustment. Anybody here ever heard the phrase, you need an attitude adjustment? I'm, I'm a child of the South. I grew up in Georgia. So I, I'd I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard my grandmother, my mother, my aunt, my neighbors, my dad say, Stephen, you need an attitude adjustment. And, and I did. And I still do oftentimes. But that's what God does. He changes our perspectives. He says, Stephen, you are looking at life one way. I'm going to show you the right way to look at life. That's what union with Christ does. Changes our position, changes our perspective. And lastly, union with Christ brings changed practices as well. Or you could say changed behavior. I was just trying to be a good Presbyterian and you know use three letters of the three words of the same letters and all that good stuff. But union with Christ brings changed practices, changed patterns. If you look back at the second half of our verse, of our key verse, Galatians two twenty, Paul wrote this. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So we've already seen quickly that Christians have been crucified with Christ. Now he clearly says that he lives for Christ. It almost seems like he's contradicting himself. You know, I've been crucified, I have died, but yet now I live. And what's interesting is to go back to the Greek, uh, the use of live is what's called a present active indicative. And what that means is it's a continual action. It's ongoing. So when he says um, that he lives by faith in the Son of God, that is a continual thing. We are no longer uh, our own, but obviously belong to Christ. Now, what's interesting is to ask someone their opinion of the Bible, especially people who aren't in Christ, people who don't know who Jesus is. They might say, you know, it's a good moral book. They might say it's mythology. It's not real. They might say any, any number of things like that. Uh, but here's something to consider about God's Word for a second. Some people think God's Word, the Bible, is made up of rules, telling us that what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And the Bible certainly does have rules in it, and it tells us how life works best. 
In fact, I like this analogy. I think Tim Keller used this analogy. Um, many of us have cars in this room. When you buy a car, you get that great little manual, right, that tells you operator manual how to use it. Now, do I have to change the oil every 3,000 miles in my car or every 60,000 miles do the timing belt or transmission flush? Do I have to do those things? Of course not. I don't have to. I don't have to listen to the owner's manual. But if I choose not to listen to the owner's manual, what's going to happen? Eventually, the car is going to break. It's not going to work the way it should. Now, granted, I realize the analogy breaks down because there's always those freak cars that go forever and you don't do anything with them, or you do everything to the car and it breaks down. But the point is, God's Word is kind of like that. It shows us how life works best. That's why God says things like marriage is between one man and one woman. That's what marriage is. And it works best. Anything out of that, anything out of that, and you are bringing destruction on yourself and your loved ones and those around you. So that's what uh, some people think the Bible is simply a thing of rules. But here's what it is. The Bible isn't mainly about us. It's not about us and what we're supposed to do. It's not about you and what you're supposed to do. The Bible is about God and who He is and what He has done in Christ and what He has done for His people. That's what the Bible is about. Consider these biblical examples quickly um, of just radical lifestyles. You know, I think of Moses who gave up a life of luxury living in Pharaoh's uh, house to, to, to follow God. Even Ruth, she left her own people uh, to follow not only her mother-in-law, but she said, your God will be my God. Zacchaeus, you know, he promised to return up to four times the amount of the money he had stole or swindled in taxes. Uh, but a, a great radical transformation can be seen in Acts 9. I invite you to turn there if you have a Bible. If not, again, I will read it. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 19, actually the second part of verse 19. As you're flipping there, this is the conversion of Saul, who would later go on to become Paul. Saul was so uh, known for his hatred of Christians the passage we're about to read, after God saved him, many people didn't believe it. They didn't want anything to do with him. They were like probably thinking, hey, he's just using this. Can we really trust him? This is the guy that has stood by why Christians have been killed and churches have been persecuted. So at the last part of verse 19 from Acts 9, For some days he, Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus. This is after his conversion. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When God saves someone... He changes their position. He changes their perspectives. He changes their behaviors. Their, their behaviors now uh, line up with God's calling. Uh, I've been married almost 12 years now, and I'm still very much a newbie when it comes to marriage. And named the marriage mistake, gentlemen, and I have probably made it. I could probably write a book at some point and make lots of money on what not to do as a husband or what to do, but I learned it by you know, process of elimination, you know, bad stuff. But the point is this. When I got married, when Debbie and I got married, um, I made a commitment, above all, to God to love her. But my lifestyle changed radically because I'm no longer living for myself. My decisions don't just affect me. They affect Debbie because I'm in union with her. When God saves someone, we are in union with Christ. 
And so our lifestyle gets changed because we're not driving the bus anymore, to use that terminology. He is. He's driving, driving the car. So this morning, I would ask you this. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ, then no doubt you've seen Jesus change patterns in your life. You know, maybe it's been little subtle changes here and there, um, but you have seen that. I've lived long enough to know that this statement is a true statement. I live according to what I believe. I really, really do. Which scares me because a lot of times I stand before you this morning preaching the truth of the gospel. But a lot of times I don't live that out. But it's still a true statement. Our actions always mirror what we believe. If someone really believes that uh, sharing Christ with someone is the greatest call that they could have in their lives, then they will pursue their neighbor regardless of what their neighbor thinks, regardless of what people might say about them. They will do that. If someone truly believes that Jesus loves them more than anything, then they will write a, when I say write a blank check, I don't mean a literal check, but they will say, God, here's my life. Take it. I trust you. I trust you to do with it what you will. That's what it means. And so I would ask you to consider this this morning. Again, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but can you look to your life and say, yes, Stephen, I'm in Christ, and I can see a consistency of changed pattern in my life. That doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. Sadly, we do sin, and the world sees that. And that's all the more when we need to allow the world to see us repent of those sins. You know what? You're right. I'm a hypocrite. When people outside of the church say the church is nothing but full of hypocrites, amen. You're looking at the chief right here. If Wes was here, I'd point to him and say the same thing because he'd agree with me. I know that. I once heard a missionary at our church say this, and again, it kind of stuck with me. This is a great phrase. A missionary was challenging the, the youth of our church, and he said this. He said, if you know Jesus, then you will love him. And if you love Jesus, you will obey him. If you're not obeying Jesus, maybe it's because you don't love him. And if you don't love Jesus, maybe it's because you don't know him. So I just thought that was a great challenge and a reminder um, of why we need Jesus. So in closing, I'd ask you this to consider. Do you have union with Christ? Are you in Christ? Again, not are you a Christian, not are you a faithful church member. Are you in Christ? Another way you would ask it is this. Is he yours? Does he belong to you? Do you belong to him? If someone was asked you the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, how would you answer? And here's the question. This is the account where Jesus is walking and he looks back to his disciples and he says, Hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? By the way, Son of Man was just kind of the most common phrase that Jesus used to talk about himself. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist reincarnated, some say one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? That's the question you need to answer for yourself. Not who does your parents say Jesus is. Not who does your husband or wife say. Not who the pastor says Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? And I would ask you one step further. Why do you say that? Can you substantiate your beliefs from Scripture? Can you articulate that? If you are in Christ, then I want to just give you some great hope. Whatever the issues you are facing, and we all face them. They could be relational struggles. It could be struggle with a particular sin. It could be work issues. Maybe family life is not what you want. Maybe marriage is difficult. Maybe you're struggling with finances like so many people in this economy. But whatever you are facing this week, if you are in Christ, 
Christ loves you more than anything. How do I know that? Galatians 2.20 He loved me and gave himself for me. If Christ did that for you, if Christ took the effects of hell on the cross, if he suffered the effects of hell so you would not have to, how much more does he care about the trivial? And I don't want to demean anyone's struggle or anything like that. But when we look at things from an eternal perspective, it gives us hope. It gives us courage. If you are in Christ, that means that Christ died for you. Talk about the greatest love letter ever written. It's amazing. This morning, if you do not have union with Christ, then I would simply say this, if I could talk to you. You don't know the joy that you're missing. I can tell you that from personal experience. And I beg you to come to Him. Don't come to church. Come to Jesus. Come to Him. Don't try to clean up your life either. Don't say, you know what, I'm an alcoholic and there's no way God loves alcoholics. Or I struggle with drugs. Or I struggle with pornography. Or I struggle with whatever. Don't clean up your life. Come to Jesus. You know, the great hymn of faith. We come to Him just as we are. But we never stay the same. He always changes us. So I beg you to remember in closing the very first recorded words of Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark. The very first thing that's recorded for us in Scripture that Jesus uh, uttered is this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Say it again. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Amen. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for those of us who are in Christ that we can say we have been crucified with Christ. That we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. In the life that we live now in the flesh, in the body, we live by faith in you. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, I pray that that truth would so radically change our lives, even this week. God, that we would go out to share with our neighbors. That we would share the truth Uh, As your word says, that we would give the reason for the hope that we have with all those who ask, why are you the way you are? Why do you make the decisions that you do? Father, I pray that we would fall more deeply in love with you as we spend time with you in your word, as we spend time uh, following your commands. God, where we fail, encourage us, build us up, and remind us above all, God, that without Christ, we would have no hope. But because of Christ, because of him, you say to us, I am not ashamed to be called their brother. God, what an amazing passage. What an amazing truth. Thank you so much, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.